Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Woodfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And as part of that, in this series, I'll be speaking with some of Scotland's leading authorities on the impact of COVID-19. The conversations are with fellows and with members of the RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission, who are keen to share their expertise and experience. You can find out more about this work at rscovidcommission.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at news underscore RSE. This week, I'm speaking with Professor Sir Ian Boyd about using the learning from COVID-19 to enhance Scotland's resilience to deal with large-scale disruptions and challenges of the future. Sir Ian is currently a professor in biology at the University of St Andrews and from 2012 to 2019 was Chief Scientific Advisor at the UK Government Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Sir Ian is also a member of the RSC's Post-COVID Futures Commission, where he chairs a working group on building national resilience. So who better to speak to us on this important issue. So we're not in a coffee house, we're both in our own homes, which explains the occasional dip in sound quality, but I'd encourage you to grab yourself a drink of something, sit back and listen to one of Scotland's leading experts talk about things that matter. So Ian, the coronavirus outbreak has prompted many discussions about the need to increase our resilience to major shocks and disruptions. Uh, But can you start us off by explaining what resilience actually is and means and and why it's so important? Uh, Well, thank you, Rebecca. And uh, and thank you for inviting me to uh, do this this podcast. Um, I think resilience is something that uh, many different people uh, have have many different definitions of. I think you'll you'll get a different definition uh, if you ask you know every individual. You'll get a different a different de- different definition. But um, you know I think that that, that there is quite a well worn track in particularly in engineering about what resilience really is. Uh, and engineers have spent uh, you know many decades, maybe even hundreds of years, trying to build resilience, resilient systems and resilient machines. So we do understand it quite well. And uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, I think there are five qualities that, that uh, a resilient system would have, and you could call it a resilient nation might have as well. Uh, one of those is diversity, uh, and that's diversity about how we deliver what we want. Um, if you have lots and lots of different uh, ways of delivering what you want. Uh, if one fails, then other one takes over. So, so diversity is important. Uh, the other one is is redundancy. Now, redundancy is in in uh, in our language is sometimes used in uh, you know a, a work context, but actually redundancy in a kind of engineering context means that there's a spare capacity within uh, within the system, um, and if you if you create spare capacity you've got more resilience and that that could be for example if you want a a resilient food system one of the ways of doing that is to store food in case of food shortages you know that would be the kind of thing that you would you would build up redundancy in the the system as a result of that and you know i think with covid19 we learned that we didn't have much redundancy within the national health service for example Uh, there was no spare capacity there at all um, 
the, the next characteristic I think is connectivity. Um, and, and again, this is this is one which which plays with the other two, with 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 diversity and, and redundancy as well. Because uh, what it does is, if you're connected to other systems, those other systems can help um, hold you up at times of shortage, for example. And uh, you, we see that in in our power grid, for example, we have interconnectors with other European countries, so that when we're short of power, uh, they are connected into us. And some other countries have an excess when we are short and they deliver power to us. And we do that for them as well. So connectivity uh, creates uh, creates resilience as well. Um, and then there's, there's, there's two things which are a little bit more kind of socially uh, uh, orientated. One is inclusiveness. Uh, and that's about equity, uh, and it's about ensuring all citizens share benefits and uh, and the burden of the costs as well. So it's about knowing how to spread the responsibility for um, resilience across the whole of society, really. Uh, and if we do that effectively, then a lot of the other things like diversity, redundancy and connectivity actually work better. Um, and then finally, there's the quality of adaptation. In other words, the, the, the capacity to understand when something is happening and to, uh, to change uh, quickly and efficiently uh, in order to be able to head off uh, whatever is happening that might be bad. Um, uh, and sometimes adaptation to some things is good and sometimes it's not so good. So th those are the kind of qualities that uh, resilience actually really require. And uh, the question is, you know, how do we take those and how do we build them into a national system to be able to build, to, to, to ensure that we have national resilience? So, I mean, it sounds like you've, it's almost a whole systems approach as well, that actually we need to look at the, the system as a whole in terms of building resilience. But there's, there's some issues there, though, I guess, where there might be some tensions or trade-offs. So thinking about redundancy would seem to butt against a lot of the narrative pre-COVID about efficiency and productivity and just-in-time systems and lean systems. So how do you marry up the, you know, how do you have a resilient system that's also an efficient system? Well, that's a really, really good question. Uh, and actually, one of the big trade-offs is between resilience and things like economic efficiency. So we we have, for many, many decades, probably since the Second World War, actually, driven our economies really hard to become more and more efficient. Um, uh, and, you know, it's almost a, a religion is to drive out the inefficiency within our economies. Um, uh, but in doing so, we've probably, without really thinking about it, uh, driven out a lot of resilience in the economies as well. Um, I, you know, I, I, the, there could be a very um, stark binary trade-off between resilience and economic growth and, uh, uh, and efficiency. Um, I, I don't think it's quite as clear as that. I think there is probably a sweet spot somewhere where you are driving economic efficiency onwards and upwards. But in doing that, you're making, you're, you're stressing that or testing that all the time against the idea of whether this is actually reducing or increasing uh, resilience at the same time. So you would make a conscious choice rather than saying, all right, we need to drive economic efficiency in this way and forget about resilience. You would be Saying, all right, are we are we creating a problem? Are we storing a problem for ourselves in the future by doing those things? 
And, and uh, you know, I think it's possible, it's perfectly possible to do that. So, you know, we, we could, uh, um, you know, have an efficient economy, but probably also a resilient economy if we were conscious of it. And I guess if, if COVID's taught us anything, it is about the economic costs that come from, from not being resilient as, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that we, we shouldn't, um, we, we should dwell on the successes as well as the failures with, with COVID. There are certain parts of the economy that have not been resilient at all. Uh, you know, international travel is, is one, but travel generally is, is, is one part. Uh, hospitality is another part, but there are other parts of our economy that actually have done really very well and that have been very resilient. In, 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 in fact, most of our economy has been quite resilient. There are just particular parts that have have been uh, particularly uh, unresilient, uh, and unfortunately, those are parts that actually employ quite numbers, quite a large number of people as well. I mean, you, you've said, Ian, on, on a number of occasions that the, the COVID pandemic was a predictable and predicted event, even if the timing and exact nature of the event couldn't be foreseen. I mean, does, what does that mean for the UK's approach to identifying and managing risk? What, what sort of things does it sort of teach us in terms of actually how, about, how we go about doing that most effectively? Well, the UK, I mean, interestingly, the UK, like, like most um, uh, you know, developed countries, but the UK in particular has, has prided itself on having a very highly developed um, national risk assessment system. Um, and, you know, it, it, clearly it, it didn't work in this particular uh, instance. Um, and, I, you know, I had um, one of my responsibilities as a chief science advisor in government was to look in on the, the national risk assessments and to uh, interrogate them and to challenge them. And uh, uh, certainly one of the challenges I had was that, 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 that what we tended to do was to look at uh, risks uh, in isolation from each other. So we would, we would think that there's, yes, there's pandemic risk, but there's also risk from climate change, there's risk from other things going on, terrorism, all those sorts of things. Um, uh, uh, and and we would, you know, occasionally every every few years we'd add a few risks to the risk register. Um, what we what we didn't fully understand, and and actually I did, I have to say I did point this out at the time. I'm not saying I told you so, but it, I, I did point this out at the time. Is that these risks don't actually um, occur in isolation from each other? They can be connected to each other. So the the the, the more you have the higher the overall risk can be. But the more you have overall, the more chance there is that something is going to actually materialise in the future. Um, so if you only have, let's say, 10 uh, national risks um, and they all have similar probabilities of happening, then um, you, know, you might have a risk materialising once every 20 or 30 years. But if you suddenly have 50 of those risks, then the probability of something happening goes down to every two, three, four, five years. Um, so, so you 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 can't look at the risks individually. You've got to look at the whole um, risk risk uh, uh, space that you're working with. Uh, and what that tells us is that a country like the UK, but actually any country in the world, is going to be faced with something like COVID nineteen. Um, much more frequently than we'd ever bargained for before. So we hadn't planned for it. You could say that actually in 2008 with the banking crisis, we had another risk of a similar kind of type. We actually got off quite lightly with that one. 
Um, uh, uh, and you could say that we should expect something like COVID-19 roughly once every 10 years or maybe even more frequently in future. So, you know, there's a question about, well, what do you do about that? Well, I, I, think, I think you do the risk assessments properly to begin with, but you also communicate them, the outcomes properly to people. And uh, that's the other thing that didn't happen was that the UK was perfectly aware that there was pandemic risk around. It tended to look at, in, at, at, at influenza as being the potential source of it, but it, it, actually that doesn't make an awful lot of difference. He knew it was going to happen, but it didn't tell people that it was going to happen. So if you don't tell people, they're not going to prepare you know, the whole system from businesses to local communities to individuals to, to the subnational governments are not going to be prepared unless they're told that these are the risks. Uh, so I think that's the primary thing. And once once we tell people, then obviously one has to get into the mold of, well, actually, what do what do we do about that? You know, help people think through the kind of problem. Um, how do you build that resilience? And that goes back to the five principles I was talking about earlier on. And that understanding and communication of risk to the public seems really important. As I'm, I'm sure I was not alone, uh, and like many people, it was about out of the blue of uh, this this pandemic. It wasn't something that I'd ever envisaged happening. Um, not 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 even just about not being prepared for it. It was just such a an unusual experience. But I think through the work of the COVID Commission, I think one of the things that's come clear is that even if there's not another pandemic, there are other things which could have similar impacts in terms of on the economy, on supply chains, on things like that, that we need to be be prepared for. I mean, I think one thing that sometimes I think there can be a tendency to think that um, building resilience is it's all the responsibility of the state. How do we sort of get a broader understanding of the role that individuals play, communities, businesses? And indeed, what would you say their, their key roles are vis-a-vis -vis government? Well, uh, you know, I, I you, you said it earlier on that I was kind of trying to paint a picture of a system uh, of response and and it is a system um, uh, and that doesn't mean that you know we as citizens just look to the government um, uh, whatever that may mean and government is a multi-layered complex organization uh, to deliver what we need in terms of resilience um, there's a moral hazard here in the sense that uh, we always think it's somebody else's problem to deal with, and um, uh, and and it's not. It is actually for everybody to deal with in some way or other. I think it is the job of government to help people understand what they need to do in order to be able to uh, build resilience. But quite frankly, uh, we will never be a resilient nation unless the individuals, uh, unless the individual citizens. Are are themselves resilient in in their own in their own lives and and comfortable about that. Um, uh, resilience starts from the bottom and works up to the top. Not doesn't start from the top and work down to the bottom. Um, but every every layer in society that will have does have responsibilities from the individual through to the community, through to the businesses, through to institutions. Uh, through, as I said, to national, subnational governments and then to, to the national governments and actually globally as well, because we've got uh, things like the World Health Organization, uh, which are there to help uh, it work at the, global, at the global scale and provide governance at the global scale. So it is a multi-layered process, but it does start with individuals. Um, and, you know, it, it, we are all presented with choices day to day, day and day out. Uh, and 
just by by tweaking those choices a little bit, we can make a huge difference to resilience. You know, if if in a country like Scotland where we've got probably perhaps about six million people all making um, marginally different choices as a result of knowing that they have to be more resilient, then that could make a huge difference. Uh, let alone if doing it on a global scale. Um, and and uh, so something that I'm quite keen on is for us to be more aware of what we need, absolutely need, as opposed to what we might want. Um, in other words, what gives us lots of pleasure and things like that. Now, that, that shouldn't be misread as being, you know, be, meaning some sort of Luddite, which says, oh, you shouldn't have pleasure or anything like that. But it's actually just being able to always try to understand that actually there are certain things that we absolutely need in order to be able to exist uh, 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 and 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 to, and to lead lead wholesome and happy lives, and there are lots of other things that we want, which just which add a lot of pleasure to it. Uh, but we might not need quite as much of them as we think we need, uh, and and we maybe need to transfer some of the kind of resources that we have. And we do all have choices to make because many of us have 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 actually we call it income surpluses to spend on things that we would like to spend things spend on and spend them on some of the things we actually need uh, uh, rather than just sort of the things that we we want so if we can shift those balances then i think we'll make a big difference and i guess in a, in a sort of very um immediate sense we're seeing some of that being played out at the moment around some of the discussions around Christmas um, and people's individual choices and the level of risks they're comfortable taking yeah. both for themselves and, and maybe um, the risks they're, they're comfortable giving to other people and and, and that also seems to play to the what you're saying earlier about the mix of top-down leadership and bottom-up input and and buy-in. Um, I mean do you think that mix feels about right at the moment or is it, is it still too early to say? Well, I, I mean, I think that we're all in a learning experience at the moment. You know, one of the one of the the the, the interesting things about COVID nineteen is the extent to which the state has had to step up and interfere in people's lives uh, in ways that actually the state prior to this would have felt very uncomfortable with. Uh, I, you know, and depending on your politics, I think you know whatever part of the political spectrum. Uh, within the UK that people come from. I think, you know, all politicians would feel very uncomfortable with that. Um, however, you know, there are all, going to be all sorts of legacies from COVID-19. Some will be negative. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But some will be positive. And and, and some of the positives uh, could be in the, in the context of um, making sure that, that uh, you know, government actually has a leadership role. Um, and this isn't about dictating to people, but it's about making sure that government really um, understands the strategy that it is, is, it is there to uh, create and deliver and uh, to properly lead the country, um, you know, along the road to delivering that, that strategy. Now, uh, you know, that, that is a very kind of top-down uh, approach, which I think we've we've sort of over quite long periods of time gradually moved away from. Uh, when when I when I was um, in government uh, in London uh, from about 2012 through to about 2017, for about five years, the word strategy it was almost outlawed by government. You know, the whole idea that government 
took a big picture view, set a point on the horizon and said, all right, we're going to lead the nation in this direction, was, it was taboo. It, was, it, was, it wasn't what government was there to do. Government was there simply to provide the services for people in order for them to live their lives and for them to make their individual decisions. The problem with that, of course, is that uh, the, the, the totality of the collective decisions of all sorts of individuals uh, making their own decisions based on their own terms of reference uh, doesn't add up to something that is, for example, dealing with a big problem, structural problem like climate change or a big structural problem like national resilience. Um, and governments do need to take responsibility for those things and they do need to lead. And I think that we've had a a significant deficit of leadership in those ways. And that's not a political point. I think it's been right across all the party uh, party politics, I think that the, in the UK, but actually I would have said probably in most developed countries of this world, um, uh, we, we've, we've had a deficit of leadership. There are a few possible exceptions. Uh, I think some of the, the Northern European democracies, Scandinavian countries have 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 the kind of social democracy where there is quite a lot of leadership sitting in there, um, but but most other countries have had that deficit and they've been building it over quite a long period of time. And I guess that plays to a slightly wider point. I mean, you were mentioning earlier about how COVID has impacted differentially on on different communities and, and industries, and, and you're referring to the hospitality sector. And so we all have a responsibility to to build resilience, but um, some individuals, areas, communities, uh, sectors have more capacity maybe to build resilience. And presumably the state then has a has a more particular role to play in those areas, does it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that with, res- with regard to building resilience, we're all going to be able to move at different, different speeds. Um, you know, clearly people who have... Um, you know, are relatively well off, who who have what what I would call surplus income, you know, have have many more choices to make uh, than than people who don't have surplus income, and there are a lot of those people. Uh, there, you know, even in a country like Scotland, there are people who uh, suffer for, from food insecurity. Uh, you know, which which in 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 a kind of a, a, a wealthy country like Scotland is a remarkable thing, uh, but it is true. Um, uh, and and we need to be able to have the social consciousness in order to be able to, to to deal with that, and that of course again comes back to leadership, but it, it but it also comes back to to this this business of social responsibility that we all as a collective need to understand that actually we're all in this game together unless unless we actually uh, help each other, uh, and and that does mean. You know, relatively well-off individuals, and I would classify myself as one of those, being able to sort of pay more into the system uh, in order to be able to make sure that the system is resilient, uh, and and that those individuals who are able to pay less into the system are also uh, capable of being resilient. Then, actually, I think that's what needs to happen. Um, now, you know, you could say that's a that's a political point. Actually, I, I, I'm in my view, it's a purely practical point. Um, it's one that where if we, as I said before, if we all, uh, you know, act individually rather than collectively, uh, we will we will end up in a situation where we don't have the resilience that we need in order to be able to um, properly cooperate as a as a as a well structured society. Uh, and you know, just just allowing 
the the um, let's say that the, the the wealthy or the or the more empowered uh, within society to to dominate doesn't actually work in the long run. And, and certainly what seems to be very clear from the pandemic is that a return to business as usual is is probably pretty unlikely and, and probably pretty unpalatable in, in a lot of ways. So, so what would a, a new normal look like in, in resilience terms? I mean, you've talked about what you I think you've implicitly sort of referred to maybe a different sort of tax system in terms of, of the support for those with, with surplus income. But is there particular infrastructure and systems you think we need to put in place as a nation, whether in the Scotland or at the UK level, to to enhance and support resilience. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would point to specific infrastructure because I'm not, I'm not sure that I know what that would look like at the moment. I think that that that's a kind of what I would call a second order uh, issue. Um, you know, I think Scotland needs to look at its own uh, its own capabilities, um, understand what the needs of its population are, not its wants, what the needs of its population are. And understand how those needs are delivered, and I think Scotland actually, as a country, uh, can cater for a huge number of those needs. You know, we've got uh, you know fantastic. You know, when you look at the, the basic needs that people have, which is for food, you know, uh, um, uh, wholesome food, uh, clean water, clean air, uh, those sorts of things, uh, and and reasonable security, you know, justice system that works, all those sorts of things. Uh, Scotland is in a really, really strong position. Um, uh, so I, I, my suspicion is that we've got most of the institutions and uh, capabilities. Uh, it's just that we're probably not putting them together right quite in the way that, that creates the resilience that we need. We, we are, as a kind of very, uh, you know, country that's right, you know, high up north uh, with, with um uh, relatively small amounts of sunshine and uh, you know relatively poor soils. We're not particularly well off with respect to food production, uh, although our, our our seas are very are very productive. Um, uh, so we need to be careful about that. We've got to import a lot of our food, um, but you know I think with new technology um, we could be actually uh, you know possibly self sufficient in food. Um, because of the renewable energy capabilities that we've got, um, uh, you know, the, I think you know, the, and the scientific community that we have is incredibly powerful. Scotland's got, for its for its size, it's got one of the most high-performing scientific communities of any country in the world, uh, and that has got the capability of uh, of innovating in ways that uh, can can solve a lot of. Our problems uh, before they before they start. Uh, we can solve problems things things like fighting vaccines for 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 uh, viruses and things like that. But that's actually um, uh, solving a problem after it's 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 materialised. We want to solve problems before they materialise, and I think we can do that through uh, the 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 highly educated population that we have uh, and the appropriate investments. And, and, you know, I, I would, because it's my specialist area, I would point to food as one of those where we could be producing a lot of food using high technology systems, um, uh, which we would both um, use ourselves and, and export. And we would be doing that on the back of, uh, you know, surplus renewable energy that we are able to, uh, able to generate in, in, a, in a highly energetic environment with lots of wind and waves and all those 
So, I mean, so that's a, a quite a positive note in terms of actually it sounds like that we've got a very solid base on, on which to build both in terms of natural resources and in terms of intellectual capital. I mean, a lot of the discussions around COVID have been sort of drawing comparisons between different nations and countries and how prepared they prepared they were. And I think particularly focusing some on some of the issue of redundancy that you raised earlier. So whether countries had testing capacity that could, that could be ramped up easily, uh, the number of ICU uh, intensive care unit beds that, that were available. I mean, are there any countries that you would look towards and say, not necessarily they've got everything right, but they're pretty well placed in terms of resilience and there are things that we could learn from them? Well, I, I, I think the first thing I would say is that I don't think any country did, uh, you know, especially well out of out of this, uh, although apart from, you know, one or one or two like uh, like South Korea and and New Zealand uh, and possibly Japan as well. Um, although Japan has had has had uh, some problems subsequently, but, you know, they, they took, took a very different directly from the rest of the world in terms of the disease uh, and the way they controlled it. Uh, and, uh, you know, in China too, um, uh, even though China was the source of the disease, um, th th there are all sorts of different reasons why different countries will have performed uh, differently. Um, I think, you know, the reality is that that a country like the UK, uh, very much like its, its European neighbours, um, performed in the way it did because of the the kind of uh, let's say the kind of economy and society that we run, which is a very open society. It's got people travelling all over the place. Uh, we've got lots of you've got very open borders. Uh, it's very liberal, uh, you know, and and it's all about individual freedoms. And there is a there is a big trade-off that sits there between those individual freedoms and. The, the 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 risks that we have from things like pandemic disease, which which exploit, uh, frankly, the 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 kind of freedoms that we all we all have. Um, but again, I think it comes back to my point about uh, about individual choices. Uh, you know, we 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 can all feel free, uh, but we can make make choices about what we actually do in terms of how we travel and those sorts of things. However, I'm not really answering your question. I think that I think that. That New Zealand is a is a is a good example. Although New Zealand, um, because of its isolation, has huge geographical advantage, uh, but actually New Zealand already had built a lot of the, the the kind of resilience that I am talking about, and it did it from it's done it from the bottom up. Uh, and you know, if you go onto the New Zealand government's website, it says that in the case of a disaster or or some sort of national emergency, don't expect any help from the government. For, for you know at least three days and probably a lot longer um and so so just by doing that and of course it's it's a country that is used to big big um big problems because it's got got huge um uh, uh volcanic risks and seismic risks uh uh and you know through earthquakes and volcanoes people understand that they're living in a risky place uh and of course they make um, provision under those circumstances, and they don't just make provision by, let's say, you know, putting you know a, a store of food in their house to be able to keep them going. It's they make provision in their heads. It's psychological. It's 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 something that when it happens, it's not a surprise, um, and that makes a big difference. Uh, and it makes a big difference to how people are able to respond to national government saying, well, actually, we're just going to shut down the economy for a while. 
because um, it's not a complete surprise. Uh, the problem in, in a country like this, but also in many other countries, so UK is not unusual in this respect, is that nobody had ever thought about that before. Nobody had ever kind of contemplated it. So, so And nobody had ever kind of thought through what the consequences would be. So we all found it psychologically very difficult. And we're still finding it very, very difficult. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when it came to the UK saying to people, well, actually, we're going to make you social distance and we're going to lock you in your houses for a long period of time and things like that. Uh, initially, people were very, uh, you know, compliant with it. But actually, the statistics show that people actually got really tired of that very quickly and and uh, the compliance really fell away. And of course, that meant the disease spread, uh, uh, you know, started to spread again. Um, so th there, are, there are all sorts of reasons why certain other countries um, uh, manage better. And I think, I think actually the Scandinavian countries have done a pretty good job as well. Uh, and of course, they are much more comparable with Scotland. Uh, you know, very you know, similar kind of, kind of economy, similar population size. Uh, uh, and, you know, we could, we could emulate uh, what they've done uh, uh, and, and actually probably be a lot better off as a result. And I think one of the things from COVID-19, I think, will be that greater understanding of risk and and the need to build resilience and, and what that might might look like. I, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about the importance of connectivity as one of the dimensions of, of a resilient society or resilient nation. And it, and it, and it certainly seems that international co cooperation is vital to re resilience and particularly enabling a coordinate response. And you see some of the work around vaccines and, and the work of WHO. Um, but at the same time, as, as, you, as you've sort of suggested, that global shocks lead to call for greater self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And you've talked about that in terms of terms of food. So, so how do we sort of balance what might be seen as competing demands, that collaboration at an international scale and, and connectivity with a more sort of maybe inward looking self-sufficiency and make sure we can do things on our own, if you like? Well, I, I, I mean, you, you, you said it. it's a balance, actually. Um, and it's a balance of trying to understand, uh, you know, where your own strengths and weaknesses lie. Um, you know, if if you have a, a, a if you have a strength, uh, which let's say in Scotland's case is is availability of renewable energy, um, then you have to build on that strength and um, uh, and use that to um, address your weaknesses. And one of our weaknesses is our capacity to feed ourselves because we. You know we're we're in, uh, not in a place where where we grow vast numbers of crops and we don't have the soils and climate to 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 do that properly. Um, so uh, you know you, you, you I think the first thing to do is to try and you know resolve those those weaknesses using your strengths uh, internally if you possibly can do. But of course that doesn't always work. Uh, and uh, you know whatever happens. You know, we are. You know, if if we start growing more of our food, uh, there is going to be a limited range of foods that we're good at growing, and we need to um, uh, trade those out. Uh, obviously, use them ourselves, but trade them out and trade foods back in again. So we, that that's the connectivity issue. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier on the 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 issue about power connectivity with interconnectors and things like that for electricity. Uh, that's a classic case where you know uh, making sure that you have most of the time you have the base load as it's called for electrical power uh, production 
you know, as a domestic necessity, uh, you're able to cater for that base load. Uh, but knowing that sometimes there are going to be real peaks of demand where you are actually going to have to ask your neighbour, say, can I can I get a loan of some of your electricity? And and um, you know if 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 uh, you scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. Uh, and so it's a trading it's a trading reciprocal trading arrangement. Um, and it, it is that balance. Um, it's not a matter of saying, all right, we're just not going to do anything ourselves. We'll just trade everything in and we'll, we'll connect with all, uh, lots of other people. Uh, we have to, uh, just as we do individually, um, we have to make our contribution. Uh, as a country, we need to make our contribution based on our strengths. Um, uh, and and I, I can't say more than that. Uh, and, and I think that uh, I think we do that to some extent, and I think that the way economics works helps us do that. Uh, but we need to be actually a little bit more conscious about it and to organise ourselves about it and be more strategic about it. And I guess it does play to what you were saying earlier about the kind of economy we are as well. I mean, very internet connected global economy with supply chains that are often sourcing different bits of kit, for example, from from right across the world. I mean, one of the things I think I've been struck by is that just the ability of firms, um, not necessarily always overnight, but certainly very quickly to to pivot, as I think the word word of the word of the word of the day is in terms of to, to making ventilators or producing PPE equipment or, or sanitizer gel. So, so I guess that's part. Of the resilience as well even if we haven't got the capacity immediately that we can we can quite quickly ramp it up to have it i i, I completely agree yeah um uh and and companies always being aware of their capacity to uh, as you say pivot to be flexible to to adapt uh adapt quickly uh and possibly even in you know investing in that uh in that adaptation capability um because actually, you know, from a from a company resilience point of view, just in the in the in the normal business market, it's a sensible thing. It's it it's often a sensible thing to be able to do is to is to reserve a certain amount of your investment for uh, for that kind of adaptive adaptability and flexibility that you might need, which which you know may happen at any time uh, because. Because of business conditions and nothing to do with other other things that are going on in the globe, it's just that in your own sector there may be maybe um, you know supply shortages and those sort of things. I guess lots of our conversation, understandably to today, has been focused on resilience in the context of COVID nineteen, and, and clearly that's been very much resilience in the face of a, of a crisis situation. But but how do we build resilience against other threats that are, are no less impactful, but but where those impacts might be felt over a longer time scale? And, and I'm thinking in particular, I guess, of something like climate change, which yeah. we've known about for years. Some work has been done, but has never been at that sort of crisis point in, in many people's minds that has maybe instigated the kind of resilience Response that COVID has. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right that it's it's a it's a it's a chronic um, emergency rather than acute emergency, um, uh, and and I I use that word because it's a common word now used with respect to climate, it's climate emergency. Um, uh, you know, in terms of chronic emergencies, uh, th- there's a very different role I think for government in those in those circumstances, but it, it comes back down to this leadership role. Um, it's about setting the uh, the objective, and I think that you know our government, um, both at UK level and at Scottish level, has has uh, you know finally got around setting an objective about net zero by 2045 in the Scottish case, 2050 in terms of 
UK government. Um, and just by setting that objective and laying it down in in law, um, it, 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 it forces the rest of the system to, um, uh, to move into that thought space and then into the space of action uh, around it. And of course, it, that then becomes part of regulation uh, uh, and, and what businesses need in particular, but also other institutions like universities, for example, and I, I'm at university, uh, they need a level playing field a lot of the time. And what, what, what those kind of national um, objectives are doing is, is creating the circumstances to, to make a level playing field uh, so that you know, people can't cheat the system fundamentally and, uh, and get away without you know, making the changes that are, are needed because there are short-term investment costs for long-term gains, and if people just uh, cheat the system, they're not paying the short-term investment costs. Then, then uh, you know, others who do are, are worse off as a result of it and competitively disadvantaged. So, you know, it's it's a matter of setting those goals uh, and then following up with the appropriate um, incentivizations and and uh, um, and I'll call, say incentivizations in a both a positive and negative sense, uh, because I think you can positively incentivized, but you can also punish as well for, for non-compliance. Uh, and it's about marching the, the, the whole uh, community, the whole system uh, in the direction of your objective. Um, and now, that is only done through the market. Now, I, I, you know, I think that government has certain things it can do, uh, but actually the market is a fantastic tool through which to deliver uh, the kind of adaptations we need for things like climate. Uh, and I think it's beginning to get going. Um, I think it's, it's, it's very late in the day. Uh, I think we could have been doing this 10 or 15 years ago uh, quite effectively. Uh, but nevertheless, we are sort of marching ourselves. I see lots of evidence in the marketplace for uh, market reform, for you know, innovation coming through, which is, is really fantastically imaginative. I see it in the context of my own university. I chair the Environmental Sustainability Board of the university, which is really thinking very radically about what does a what does a, a, a universe, a net zero university, actually look like. Uh, and it, and it's, I think it's very different from the from our current vision of a university. Uh, and getting that that vision in place within an institution like the University of St Andrews and saying to people, oh, actually, the sorts of things you're doing now are not going to be the way we're going to be doing it in 10 or 15 years' time, and gradually moving them into that, that space of thinking about how they might do it that is, is much more sustainable is, um, is all part of the process. Uh, and there's only a certain speed at which that can happen because people will adapt at certain rates. They won't, they won't take kindly just be, being told that actually you did X today, uh, sorry, you're not going to be allowed to do X tomorrow and you must do Y. Um, they might take kindly to saying, actually, in 10 years' time, we think that what you're doing in terms of X is probably not going to be feasible, but Y is going to be more feasible and you need, you've got 10 years to transition. That, that is feasible. But, but um, uh, I think some of the messages get, get a little bit garbled sometimes. 
And I guess one of the things we have seen from COVID is an acceleration of uh, of things happening that might in the past have been thought as not possible or not possible until years hence. Uh, but things there's been a creativity yeah. that has allowed things to be done maybe more quickly than they might otherwise have been done, you know, whether that's joining up data sets or, or whatever. I mean, I think we've accelerated things. I mean, we've shown, you know, there are, as I said, there are lots of negatives about, about COVID. You know, if you'd had a choice, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had it at all, obviously. But 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 we need to capitalise on the on the positives. Uh, and one big positive is that we've turned, uh, you know, a ten year program for getting vaccines into something that has actually taken about eight or nine months. Uh, and that is that is just remarkable. I, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. And it's not just one vaccine; it's potentially hundreds of of vaccine candidates. Probably, actually, in reality. You know, a couple of dozen uh, will will probably come come to the fore and be 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 available. But you know, the power of innovation and the power of invention is just phenomenal if we want to apply ourselves to it. So if you then take that and translate it to climate change and to net zero objectives, we have the power to do it. There is no doubt about that at all. It's just, do we have the will to, to apply it? That's the question. Well, that sounds a really positive note on, on which to to end. Professor Sir Ian Boyd, thank you for talking to us today and sharing your expertise and experience about using learning from COVID-19 to enhance Scotland's resilience. Thank you.